Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Happy New Year! Our first guest for the year 2017 is Brian Clegg, one of Britain's most talented writers on sciences and related topics. His latest book, Are Numbers Real?, is a compact, very readable, and highly entertaining history of the development and use of mathematics to answer the important practical questions involved in advancing civilization. The question, Our Numbers Real is a terrific way to attack the problem so compellingly stated by the physicist Eugene Wigner. What accounts for the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in describing the natural and the man-made universe? Brian, welcome to the show. Hi there. Happy New Year, Brian. And Happy New Year to you too. And also to the listeners. Brian, why should the question, Are Numbers Real, concern us? Well, we, we use numbers all the time, both consciously, I don't know if you're doing your accounts, say, and indirectly whenever we use anything digital. Uh, and of course, science is fundamentally dependent on numbers. So I think it makes a lot of sense to explore the relationship between mathematics and reality. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's a good reason because we all use numbers so often that we, uh, they are both abstract and real to us. But are they real entities themselves? And I know that philosophers have been looking at this for centuries. To what extent is mathematics a game played by mathematicians? And to what extent does it reflect reality? I think it's a bit of a spectrum. So at one end, at the most basic, math has a strong correspondence to reality. And I use an imaginary example in the book of someone developing numbers to manage a goat herd. Uh, you know, so a, a number corresponds to a physical object. And then in the middle of the spectrum, the maths kind of detached itself from anything real, but it still has definite practical applications and it, it acts as a, a sort of model building environment somewhere you can simulate reality, but it's not actually real itself. And then at the far extreme, mathemat- mathematicians can build structures just for the fun of it that have absolutely no connection with reality at all. And that's fine. It's fascinating. But it's a different world. Well, as a mathematician, one of the things that has astounded me over the years, and we can explore possibly a little later, is the fact mm-hmm. that some of these abstract structures that have been built by mathematicians just for what you might call amusement or intellectual diversion all of a sudden turn out to have a, uh, an amazing contact with reality. And mm-hmm. when you're a mathematician, you continually see this, and it's one of the pleasures of the of studying the subject. Absolutely. I mean, and it's one of the reasons also why we can't say you must only work on real-world problems. You know, if we, if we restrict mathematicians that way, we're not going to get the really amazing breakthroughs. That's a very good point. Why do you think other cultures, such as the Asian ones, see mathematics in a more positive light than the European ones? Is it simply a matter of how mathematics is taught in the different cultures? I think teaching has to be part of it, uh, but there's also something of an attitude. We're, we're 
brought up with the idea that mathematics and, and science for that matter is difficult. It, it's something that's hard work. And maybe we should be coming at it in a different way, trying to make it more fun uh, as we teach it in school uh, so that when people come to use it, they actually appreciate and enjoy it rather than feel it, it's a chore. Brian, that's actually been one of my one of the projects that I've been working on for actually, I guess, my entire life is because <laughs> nowadays education fights with entertainment. I, I once wrote a blog in which I stated that um, in America, there's sort of a myth that Abraham Lincoln trudged to school through snowstorms because he was so aware of the importance of an education as a 12 year old boy in rural Illinois in the year 1820. But what I really think is that um, when you consider what was going on in the log cabin in the dead of winter, um, namely nothing interesting, and you went to school and you found out that you were learning history about what had happened in the past and you were learning about science and things like that, vastly more interesting than, the content, than his contemporary environment. But today we face the opposite question is that students are often bored in school because the entertainment presented to them is so incredibly good. I think that's a great point, yeah, and, and it's a big challenge for any educator. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the points that you made in your book was that you thought numbers arose through transactional relationships, dealing with money. And I think that's the uh, I think that's actually a point. And the Romans used the primitive grouping method you outlined. And do you think that was related to uh, uh, working, you know, working some sort of transactions? Or do you think that that probably arose earlier? I suspect that's earlier. I mean, the, the most of the things the Romans used tended to be lifted from other cultures um, and, you know, the, the basic ways of, of handling numbers uh, reflects various other earlier systems. Uh, but as you say, um, to start with, people had to be thinking really about things like accounting, about dealing with their everyday life, uh, about, as I as mentioned in the goats, uh, in the book, fictionally, the, the idea of, of a produ you know looking after your goats, making sure you've got the same number of goats at the end of the day that you start with. <laughs> yeah, you know it. Uh, it it's interesting that you mentioned the example of goats and uh, looking at, at at your goats to make sure that the same number of uh, goats at the end of the day. And one of the things that I wondered about was. Um, this isn't in your book, but I read an article in Science, I think, of many years ago, in which what they did was they discovered that alligators, with, uh, with the baby alligators, the mother had some sort of awareness of basic counting. And so do, uh, uh, so do uh, um, I think it's barn swallows, that when they go into, uh, um, and owls, when barn swallows fly into uh, uh, fly into a barn, the owl knows when there are still uh, still barn swallows still in the barn, and just as the mother alligator knows when there are when a, she leaves the baby alligator's nest and comes back and found finds that a predator has killed one of the baby alligators. Um, the mother knows and indicates grief, and I wondered whether or not she's counted and there were seven before and there are only six now, or whether she knows that it's Fred who's missing uh, and can <laughs> identify the individual kids, 
or whether there's some trace of the, you know, trace of the predator that I couldn't pick up. But anyway, I like the idea of the goats. And uh, I, I, I think that you raised a very interesting question there. And also, when we discuss other number systems, it always amazed me that the Babylonians used a base 16 number system. It seems so sophisticated for that era. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, the, the advantage of 60, of course, is that it's a number that has lots of other numbers you can divide it up into, more, many more than 10. Uh, and we still use base 60. It, I mean, it, it sounds a bit odd to us now, but of course, things like seconds, minutes, we are still using that 60 base counting thanks to the Babylonians. Yeah. Um, also, one of the things that uh, that I enjoyed about reading your book is that it reinforced a lot of my prejudices and a lot of my <laughs> opinions. I always love it when that happens. And one of the things that you bring up was the idea that negative numbers arose through the concept of debt. And when I was teaching math for elementary school teachers, I would emphasize this over and over again. But I wonder where you got the idea. Well, I, I think it's partly because negative numbers is, is that first step where it feels like you're moving away from reality. So positive numbers, whole numbers feel like real things, whereas a negative number, your immediate response is, well, I can't show you minus two things. But when you start thinking about debt, about the idea of I've lent you something or I'm, I, I, I owe you something, then there is that aspect of, of negativity, of a negative number. Uh, and so it's really just an intuitive feel that this is where it feels like it ought to be coming from. And you also, because of the idea of debt, you get the idea of positive and negative numbers cancel out. And if you pay back five dollars, you've negated the debt of of five dollars plus five minus five equals zero. So I really like that idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, moving on to the Greeks. Um, how did the Pythagoreans? Um, essentially uh, enact, maybe that's the wrong word, their philosophy that all is number? How did they incorporate it in their lives? Well, they seem to see number in everything uh, and read philosophical ideas into numbers. Uh, so that they describe you know, odd numbers as being male and even numbers as being female. Um, many of the low numbers have specific meanings. But most of all, I think that they thought of numbers a, a bit in the way that quantum physicists use the idea of the quantum as the, the fundamental individual building blocks of reality. That They saw the creation, if you like, as being built on number. And for that reason, whole numbers specifically were particularly important to them. You know, in, uh, in listening to you, it occurred to me that the Pythagoreans anticipated the digital world of today in which, mm-hmm. you know, most of what we, you know, most of our digital environment, our computer environment is built out of whole numbers. Yeah, yes, that's right. I mean, uh, although they weren't working in uh, uh, binary, so zeros and ones as our digital world is, they did very much see the, these whole numbers uh, as being the basic elements. It was partly also, I suspect, frankly, that their ways of representing numbers meant that they find it quite difficult to deal with anything other than whole numbers. So in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, it was a convenience as well, I suspect. Yeah, you know, when you, I was reading about the Pythagoreans, I knew that they were sort of an odd group. But one of the things that I read in your book was that uh, uh, allows me to introduce uh, a little bit of mystery. How did a mathematical secret provoke a murder by the Pythagoreans? 
Okay, well, I ought to stress this is a legend. This isn't history, really. Uh, but the, this Pythagorean view that everything was based on whole numbers meant that uh, they allowed for fractions. That they didn't mind ratios of whole numbers because that was just two whole numbers operating together. But they were shocked, totally shocked, and I think genuinely shocked to discover that the diagonal across the middle of a unit square, so a square that's one by one, what we'd now call square root of two could easily be proved not to be the ratio of any two whole numbers. So you could not make that number from any two whole numbers. We now call it an irrational number because it isn't the ratio of two numbers. And it's said that they tried to hush this up. And, and one, of, one of their numbers, somebody called Hipparsus, let the truth out. He was supposedly taken away in a boat and drowned for letting the secret out. I, I, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that uh, that you look at um, is that there could be a world in which a secret about numbers uh, was considered to be so important or so critical that they would be willing to convent, uh, con uh, commit murder. But you look at the world of today and you look at, say, the world of espionage and there mm -hmm. are secrets, you know, there are secrets about science which are important enough to commit murder. Yeah, and as far as the Pythagoreans were concerned, this was fundamental, you know, that this was right at the heart of reality, and their entire worldview really was put on edge just by this mathematical finding. Um, you know, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the questions and the points that you explore in your book is the idea of the platonic ideal figure or shape. And what is the mm. relationship between mathematical models and platonic ideal figures? I suppose that the difference is which of the pair is real. Uh, because Plato had this idea of the, these ideal figures, say, for example, a perfect triangle, and that that was the real deal. That was what a triangle really was. And the thing that geometry worked with, so it had lines that were had no width at all. It was perfect in every way. But that wasn't possible to do in the real world. So a physical triangle was just a, a kind of crude approximation to an ideal triangle. It was just a shadow of it. Uh, and I think now kind of we turn that on its head and we see a mathematical model as being an approximation to something in the real world. So it's the mathematical form that's the shadow of the real thing. Uh, certainly from a physicist's viewpoint, I'm not sure a mathematician would agree with that. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was ready to jump on that one. <laughs> Um, but uh, and there were some, you know, you you bring out uh, some very interesting points in the history of mathematics. And of course, one of the things I can remember when I was uh, when I was teaching at UCLA is I was a very junior faculty member, so I got uh, stuck with the job of answering the postcards and the letters of the times because this was back in the sixties that people would send um, in which they announced extraordinary mathematical results. And in particular, I remember I got any number of letters about people claiming that they had squared the circle. What problems occurred as a result of trying to square the circle? Well, the, the, the Greeks were obsessed with solving geometric problems using only a compass and a straight edge. Uh, and it's, I think it's a bit like the way 20th century mathematicians and scientists were initially reluctant to use computers. They, they didn't like it, that they liked things being done in a very particular way. And the Greeks thought specifically that it was possible to, to construct a square 
of the same area as a circle using just those geometrical tools, so just the compass and the straight edge. And the trouble was that, the, of course, the area of a circle depends on pi, which is a number that we now call transcendental. It's a number that you can't represent with any finite equation, which makes it just impossible to perfectly re- reproduce in the platonic world of geometry. It, it, they were literally trying to do something that, that is impossible. Uh, but because they were so obsessed with this approach that they felt it had to be, you know, you had two very simple shapes, a circle and a square, you ought to be able to get from one to the other in terms of area, but it just would not work. And, and it frustrated people literally for centuries. You know, one of the things I enjoyed about reading your book, as I do when I read all your books, is that you throw in a lot of things that I sort of feel that I should know, but I didn't really. And so I'm glad somebody took the trouble to essentially condense them in Reader's Digest condensed version. And one of the things that I felt that I should know was the sand, Archimedes, the Sand Reckoner, because it's a fundamental work in a history of mathematics. But I'd always sort of skimmed over it because I was so attracted to Archimedes because of all the other stuff that he did, because this was one of the great scientists of all time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the contributions that Archimedes, the sand reckoner, made to the development of arithmetic? Well, it's a bizarre book, really, but it's a lovely one. Uh, and it's a little book, very short. Uh, and what Archimedes set out... even more guilty. Yeah, <laughs> no, <it really> <laughs> uh, What he set out to do was count the number of grains of sand it would take to fill the universe uh, by universe it meaning basically the solar system because that was all they really thought of was the universe um, now obviously this was not a practical exercise he wasn't planning to go out and do it uh, what he was really doing apart from having fun in the way any mathematicians can is uh, showing that it's possible to extend the Greek number system indefinitely because their number system was very limited. The, the biggest number they would normally deal with was a myriad myriads, which is 100 million. Uh, but he set up a number system where it was possible to deal with values that would require 50 or 60 digits in our system, so huge numbers. Uh, and showed how it was possible just to extend the system and do the math. Uh, he did also do some interesting, quite clever bits of geometry to try to work out, for instance, how big the universe was. Uh, he made a very good estimate. His size was was about the size of the orbit of Saturn, which is, it really was very good for the time. Uh, but the really interesting thing from his viewpoint was he was taking this very limited number system and showing how it could be extended indefinitely. You know, I feel it's necessary at this stage just to put in a word about how impressive the achievements of the Greeks were, because when you think mm-hmm. about it, they didn't they basically had very little to write on. They didn't they couldn't do scrap paper or stuff like that. They didn't have you know, they had limited writing tools. Um, they had limited ways to record what it was that they knew. And yet and from our standpoint, they had, you know, very little sophistication and they were able to do incredible things in both mathematics and physics. And you have nothing but admiration for them. That's right. I mean, uh, there's a little slight tendency these days sometimes for, for people to put them down because they were often wrong. And they were. Uh, so, you know, Aristotle, for instance, um, his, much of his science was wrong. But I think part of the problem is we see things a bit differently because they were trying to address different things. They were looking at, for instance, not so much how something happened, but why it happened. 
uh, I guess, a more philosophical approach. So they were doing something different, but their achievements, as you say, were remarkable given the, the lack of technology uh, that they had at the time, the lack of the ability uh, to really do anything other than think about things. Yeah. Um, well, moving on to uh, what I think is a totally different portion of the world, what is the history of the invention of zero and how did it revolutionize mathematics? Yeah, zero, I, I think, is wonderful just because it sounds so insignificant. I mean, it's nothing, uh, but it has two enormous role, roles in maths. Uh, and one is to, to provide the answer to questions like, what is two minus two? It's the middle of the number line, if you like, if you're familiar with number lines. It, it, it has a fundamental position there. But the other important thing is as a placeholder. Uh, so if you're starting to say, okay, Rather than just have a string of numbers and you have to add them together and work it out, we'll use the position in order to decide how big a number is. Then what do you do when there was a gap? Uh, and this comes through with the Babylonians. We've already mentioned them with their uh, multiples of 60. Uh, they could produce very big numbers. And what they would do is each column, if you like, was 60 times bigger. Um, and... The only problem there was what happens if you have a gap between columns. So, for instance, the number 61 and the number 3,000, uh, 3,601 were basically identical, apart from having a bigger gap between the two numbers. Now, those are pretty different numbers. You don't want to confuse them. So eventually, they did start to put a marker in the gap, effectively like a couple of slashes between them that were acting as, as a placeholder, but they never really went through with it properly. And the zero that we use came to us from India uh, via our Arabic writers, uh, and it might go back, we're not quite sure, to the use of a kind of dot as a placeholder in India or Cambodia, maybe 1,400 years ago. And the exact route it got to us isn't clear, but the fact is it was one of the major fa factors in, in transforming mathematics and making it practical to do much more with number. You know, going over to uh, uh, going over to England, there was a wonderful anecdote and environment in your book that I really enjoyed. The description of what college life was like when Oxford was founded, and maybe you can spend a little time on that in conjunction with the following question: What was Roger Bacon's role in the rise of mathematics to the position of influence it now occupies in the sciences? Yeah, Roger Bacon was a really interesting character. Uh, he was an English Franciscan friar in the 13th century. And we mostly know about him now because he wrote a huge book proposal. Uh, this book proposal, this isn't the book, it's just the proposal, was about a million words in length. Uh, and what he was proposing was an encyclopedia of all knowledge. Uh, now, Bacon spent a lot of time in early universities, uh, mostly Oxford and Paris. Uh, and as you say, it was a very different environment. Uh, so very small things that were quite different were one of the first things you would ever get in a, a university was a barbershop because to be a student, you had to take uh, minor orders. So you basically had to be – you weren't ordained, but you did have to become part of the church, which at the time meant a tonsure. So basically you had to have your hair cut off head uh, to be a student, uh, rather different from students these days. Yeah, <laughs> things have changed. Uh, and there were, there were often rowdy battles between townspeople and the students. Uh, you know, it was they were very new. There were things that nobody was quite sure what was happening. But the other thing that was interesting 
was the curriculum was very focused at the time uh, in the 13th century on ancient Greek ideas, and there was little room for new ones. And I think Bacon was one of the first to really start prodding a little bit and start thinking beyond just the way the Greeks had thought. And particularly, he stressed the importance of mathematics. He said, he who is ignorant of mathematics cannot know the other sciences and the things of this world. Now, to be frank, I think his direct inference was limited, uh, Bacon, but the fact is his work was used by many others, and it began the gradual shift away from this obsession with things being fixed in the past to the way that Newton could just totally overthrow old ideas using maths as his lever. You know, one of the things that when you look at the title of your book, Are Numbers Real?, the first thing that you think of as a mathematician is real numbers as opposed to imaginary and complex numbers. And what are mm -hmm. imaginary and complex numbers? And if they don't appear in the real world, how can they find useful applications in science? Yeah, I think, as we've already discussed, that it's often the case that something that starts as a mathematical diversion ends up having practical use. Um, and in this particular case, uh, an imaginary number started off really as a, <laughs> wouldn't this be a fun idea, as what could you multiply by itself to get a negative number? Because it was known, you know, you multiply a positive number by itself, you get a positive number, you multiply a negative number by itself, you get a positive number. So nothing, when multiplied by itself, made a negative number. So they just made one up. Uh, and Descartes called it imaginary for that reason. Um and uh, so we've got this idea of an imaginary number. So the square root, say, of minus one, what is it? You multiply by itself to get minus one. And then that was extended a bit to make a complex number, which was a combination of, of the ordinary real number, the kind of stuff we count with, and an imaginary number. As I say, to begin with, it's just mathematical fun. But it was discovered that if you plot these on a, on, on a chart, on a graph, uh, with real numbers on one axis, imaginary numbers on the other, then the way that the mathematicians had played around with making the arithmetic of complex numbers turned out to be incredibly useful for dealing with things that change with time, with things that plot in two dimensions. So, for instance, the alternating current and a power supply, something that moving like that, an engineer will use a complex number to work with it. And as long as the final result doesn't have an imaginary number left in it, then they do the job perfectly. So it's really a way of translating into a different world, an imaginary world, a mathematical world, to do your work, and then you translate back into the real world. You lose the imaginary, but it's done the job along the way. You know, also one of the things that, uh, uh, that happens is that the complex numbers still produce some amazing results. When anybody looks at those Mandel, uh, the Mandelbrot fractal sets, Mm -hmm. um, those are those are basically all produced using complex numbers. And those incredible diagrams are all produced using complex numbers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know it is impossible to supply a brief history of the development of calculus because I mean that's you know there is no such well there might be a brief history of the development of calculus, but what makes it such a valuable tool and how does it differ in nature from the math that preceded it? I think the thing is that calculus allows us to deal with values that are changing in ways that just weren't possible before. I mean, Newton developed it to build his mathematics of motion and gravitation, uh, although, as it happens, the terminology and approach we now use is based on uh, the work of his contemporary Leibniz. So the two of them 
pretty much developed it at exactly the same time. And it's at its heart is this idea that you can take smaller and smaller segments of something and, and combine them together to make the whole. And when you made those segments so small, they pretty much disappear away. Uh, in fact, a critic of the time called them the ghosts of departed quantities. The right answer pops out. Uh, I think the reason calculus is so powerful is that the real world is rarely unchanging. Uh, you know, in real world shapes are rarely all nice straight lines. And what calculus gives us is a way of dealing with change and curviness that we just couldn't handle before. And I know that one of the uh, uh, one of the major uh, major points in my mathematical career was it took me a while to appreciate calculus. But when you get to the second semester of a standard calculus program, at least in the United States, you learn how to compute the volume of the sphere. And mm -hmm. ca in calculus, it's a 20-second problem to compute the volume of a sphere, maybe 30 seconds if you're a slow computer. And to this day, if somebody asked me to show that the volume of the sphere was four-thirds pi r cubed via solid geometry, I would have no idea how to do it, and I have no idea how the Greeks knew how to do it. <laughs> Another reason that I think they were so incredibly brilliant is that they managed to get a lot of results that you get through calculus fairly easily, and they didn't seem to need calculus. So it, calc you know, I, I, quite frankly, I don't think anybody is fully educated unless they've had a semester of calculus. And that's just a prejudice from a math teacher, maybe to drum up more business. But just like you don't have a complete education if you haven't read Shakespeare, if you don't know some history, I don't think you've had a complete education if you, uh, if you haven't had some calculus. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the converted on that one. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um, but other branches of mathematics were uh, uh, were arising, in, and uh, uh, how did the study of probability and statistics arise? Uh, it's just funny because both of these, there's a kind of dubiousness about them that I think makes them quite fun. So statistics were originally just bits of information about states, so countries. Um, but in the 17th century, there was a, a London button maker called John Grant who started to play around with the numbers that they got on births and deaths in London uh, and started to see how he could produce new numbers from those that would give a picture of how the population was going to vary. Um, and the thing about statistics is they often involve prediction which can come close, frankly, to guesswork, which I guess is, <laughs> guess is why you get this dubious reputation that, you know, came up with the phrase, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah, I think um, that was Disraeli. <laughs> well, there's a certain amount of dispute. Who, who, he claims he was quoting somebody else, but we're, we're not quite sure on that one. Uh, but by contrast, probability kind of went the other way around because it started with something that definitely was dubious. It started really out of games of chance and, and the probability of winning uh, gambling games and that kind of thing that came to be a very powerful tool. And the thing, thing about both of them is that certainly in physics, uh, they've come to be incredibly useful. So statistics tends to come to play when we're dealing with large quantities of similar, similar things. So uh, Maxwell, for instance, used it when originally were thinking about how a smell travels across the room, how the molecules of, of the, the sort of odour uh, start to diffuse across a room, and went on to build statistical mechanics, which explains how gases behave from the action of all those individual molecules, but taking a statistical view. Um, 
and for that matter, probability, you know, it's always been useful and, uh, you know, it started to be used initially in things like insurance, uh, but also became absolutely central to physics with quantum mechanics when it, when it was became clear that uh, reality seems to be based on probability rather than predetermined outcomes. So in a way, I'd say, you know, what we've got here are two things that in some ways are more real than calculus because they are the reality itself seems to be have that probability embedded in it. Uh, and yet calculus is brilliant when it comes to uh, modeling the real world and giving us absolutely solid values like your volume of a sphere. Yeah. You know, one of the and incidentally, you know, you can compute the volume of the sphere probabilistically also, which is sort of uh, which is sort of interesting. Never. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you have a reverence for James Clark Maxwell, as do I. But I think our references uh, comes from different things. I mean, I look at Maxwell's equations of electromagnetics and I say these are absolutely some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And it's incredible that they reflect reality. But you think of James Clark Maxwell as being the first scientist, and that sort of surprised me, and I wondered if you'd tell our listeners why. Yeah, although I have to say, I mean, absolutely agree over Maxwell's equations several times in books. I've actually put them in just to say, isn't it amazing that something so compact, uh, particularly in the, the final version uh, that came out after his time, uh, can describe so much about uh, how electricity and magnetism and light work. Um but in terms of Maxwell being the first scientist, the, the, I guess there's two arguments, really. There's the uh, trivial one, which that was that the word scientist was only coined in 1834. So he was one of the first people who arguably could literally be described as scientist because the word wasn't used before then. Um, but it's more really that he was the first modern scientist in the sense that his work was driven by the mathematics uh, in a way that hadn't be, happened before. So Newton used mathematics as a really important tool, whereas Maxwell, when he was thinking about electromagnetism, he started in that traditional way. So originally he was using kind of mechanical models of what was going on, but he made the leap then to using maths on its own, that he was only modeling in maths without having any sort of visual picture of what was going on in his final version. And that's really how modern physics tends to work, that it's driven from the maths rather than necessarily a visual picture. Uh, of what's happening. You know, one of the things that mathematics has managed to cope with that perhaps physics hasn't is the concept of infinity. And mm -hmm. do physicists consider the concept of infinity to be a legitimate part of physics? Uh, well, I think you have to see it in two ways. That Generally speaking, physicists feel that if the outcome of a calculation is infinite, the science has broken down. So, you know, if you think of something like a black hole, uh, we say that it's become an infinitely dense point. And what we really mean by that it probably is that it probably hasn't, but the physics isn't real working anymore. We, we really need something different to describe what's going on uh, because the result is infinite. And, you know, uh, when they were doing the maths for quantum theory, what they tended to do when infinities arose was replace values with observed ones. Uh, so they're effectively saying, you know, <laughs> something's gone wrong. Uh, we'll have to fix it by putting the real values in. Um, but physicists are totally happy with things like potential infinity, so the, the infinity used in calculus, uh, a limit you never reach. I think they're less happy just saying, you know, here's, here's infinity, I can point to it and show you infinity. Uh, having said that, of course, you know, no one knows, for example, if the universe is finite. Um, but it's more really the matter, I think, the mathematicians 
don't have a problem with Infinity because as long as they can define rules to deal with it, they can use it, whatever it is. Uh, whereas physicists always have to come back to being able to point to something in reality and say, you know, here it is, I can show it you. It's, it's a problem that mathematicians don't have. You know, one of the extremely interesting areas of physics that was essentially arose in the 20th century, although, as you pointed out, it maybe didn't, is the idea of relativity. And there are three classic experiments, two of which are thought experiments, which underlie uh, which underlie the principles of Galilean relativity, special relativity and general relativity. Could you describe these experiments and tell us what the differences are between these three theories? I realize this may be a little lengthy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I suspect actually I might not be thinking of quite the same experiments because the ones I'm going to come up with uh, probably we want to all, hear yours. They're probably <laughs> they're all real to an extent. Uh, so I'd, I'd start off with Galileo, who who was the first one really to come up with relativity, um, which is basically just saying you know when you say something's moving, you have to say moving with respect to what. There isn't just motion of its own self. Um, and he supposedly, uh, may or may not be true, but uh, was rowing across a lake in Italy with some friends. And he borrowed a friend's key, somebody called Stoluti, he took his key and threw it up in the air. And apparently the others in the boat had to restrain the friend from jumping off the back of the boat because he was convinced that, you know, the boat would zoom along, the key would fall back down behind it and fall into the water. But Galileo knew about relativity, he knew that as far as the key was concerned, the boat wasn't moving. The key was sitting in the boat to start with. The boat isn't moving as far as it's concerned. He throws it up. There's no reason why it should suddenly discover the boat's moving. It falls straight back <laughs> into his lap. And, you know, this is basic high school stuff. This is stuff, you know, if you think about it, ought to make sense for everybody. Uh, you take a step forward, we're into Einstein, and he started off with special relativity. And I guess the best experiment, uh, the, the first practical experiment done to illustrate uh, special relativity's impact on time, the fact that if something's moving, its time uh, slows down as seen from somewhere else, uh, was made by flying atomic clocks around the world. And the relative motion of the clocks to the Earth meant the clocks ran slower so that when they got back home, they were behind atomic clocks that hadn't traveled around the world or that had gone the other way. Uh, and I think things that's quite amusing about that is they couldn't afford to charter a plane. So they had to strap these atomic clocks into economy seats on an ordinary airliner. So <laughs> um, it's rather nice. Um, and that's, you know, a practical experiment that's difficult, actually, to do the calculation. But if you use the right thought experiment with special relativity uh, using something called a light clock, uh, again, all you need is high school mathematics. It's nothing more, a little bit of geometry, actually. Uh, and uh, so even the ancient Greeks would probably do it. Uh, and you can see some of these effects starting to come through. But we take a huge leap, as Einstein did, when he moved on to general relativity, uh, which shows that gravity is due to a distortion of space-time by matter, that matter actually warps space and time. And probably the best experiment there, I guess, to, to first demonstrate it was the, the Edit Eddington expedition of 1919, where they basically traveled to uh, a, a couple of destinations to observe a, an eclipse of the sun. Uh, and when the sun's uh, covered by the moon, you can see the stars that are close to it uh, or that appear close to it. And what happened was because of the sun's gravity, 
distorts space and time. It actually moved the stars, apparently, visually, towards it so that you could actually see a movement of the stars from where they should be. And that was used to, to actually demonstrate the effect of general relativity. Um, but for that one, it was mathematically a whole different ballgame. Uh, in fact, Einstein had to get help with the mathematics. It was too much for him uh, because it involved the mathematics of curved space, uh, which was pretty modern and, and trendy uh, back in his day. Uh, and it was something he struggled to get his head around. But, you know, the interesting thing is that to a certain extent, we've come back to a point that we made earlier because the mathematics of curved space was developed by a bunch of mathematicians in the total abstract who were yep. just and, and there you are once again, that our world is tremendously impacted by essentially mathematicians playing games with uh, playing games with concepts that at the moment don't appear to have any reality. And I must admit that sometimes happens, or at least it happened when I was doing mathematical research, I'd say, I wonder if this has any application, but you do it because you just never know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although, to be fair, I think in some ways we ought to have got into the mathematics of curved space earlier, because in, in the end, we lived on, live on a curved surface. We don't live on a flat plane. Um, you know, two parallel lines, we're told, don't join. Well, you try drawing two parallel lines from the equator towards North Pole and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the people that you talk about in your book is somebody who I've always had tremendous admiration for and probably very few people who are, who are outside the realm of mathematics or science know about her, Emmy Nerder. And what were her contributions to mathematics and physics, and why were they so important? Uh, we, you're right. Until recently, certainly, she hasn't been well known. I think it's fair to say that we're now starting to get more information out there in the public about uh, women in maths and science. And Nertha was a fascinating character, uh, one of the first great female mathematicians. She was working in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. And to see the kind of things she was up against, um, she had to be given special government permission to teach in a university because she was a woman. Uh, she actually literally had to be given permission by the government, a specific almost law, to say she could teach in a university because women weren't allowed to. Um, and Nertha showed that all the conservation laws in physics, the idea is that there are quantities like energy and momentum that don't change in a system that's isolated from the outside world. So, you know, if you s separate a system from the outside, then the energy in it never changes. The, the momentum of things in it all added together never changes. But you could derive these laws. You could produce them from symmetry, uh, from the mathematics of symmetry. And this is something we're quite familiar with in terms of mirrors. Uh, you know, the idea that a mirror reflection of something, uh, if it's symmetrical, it'll look the same in the mirror uh, as it looks like in the ordinary world. Uh, but symmetry in maths, of course, is, is uh, much more. It's about being unchanged, something being unchanged if it undergoes a particular operation. So, yes, it can be a mirror reflection, but it also could be a rotation or a sideways movement through space called a translation or, or even movement through time. And symmetry has really proved hugely important in physics since the 1950s to the extent, frankly, that some physicists think their colleagues are obsessed with symmetry and look for it even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. But the fact is a huge amount has been derived from it and from the mathematics, again, that Emmy Nerther probably had no practical ideas for at all. It was simply a case that she managed to produce what she felt was a, a beautiful piece of mathematics 
and it now has had amazing practical applications. Um, you know, one of the places that you see mathematics um, possibly raised to a position of eminence that maybe it doesn't deserve is in the construction of current cosmological theories. In fact, I heard somebody once describe some of the cosmological theories, of which there were zillions um, at the moment, described as mathematical theology. And it's driven cosmo current cosmological theories as well as the standard model in physics. And maybe you could uh, provide the listeners with some sort of introduction to this. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I'm, what I want to stress immediately is, though, is we're not, Nobody is saying that maths is unimportant. Nobody is saying you can do physics without mathematics. It continues to be the same kind of valuable tool that Newton made it. Um, you couldn't imagine doing physics without maths. But the only concern is that the, there are such complex mathematical structures being built by theoretical physicists that, first of all, no one else can understand them, and they often can't explain them well to anybody else themselves. And that scientists can spend a lifetime working on problems around these mathematical structures that were never able to be tested or that could just prove a figment of the mathematical information if any real data is made available. So it's not that we should move away from math, but maybe the balance isn't quite right at the moment. And some people say, for instance, uh, things like string theory, uh, which hundreds of physicists have spent their working life on um, and is mathematically very complex – uh, but unfortunately has yet to produce anything that can really be tested in the real world. Uh, and the, I think there's concern perhaps that we're putting the, the math ahead of the observation, that maybe we should be driving more from observation and, and saying, okay, let's make the math available to find out more about that, rather than driving purely from the mathematical side. But, you know, that's, of course, one of the basic questions that has arisen in the relationship between math and physics ever since Newton started going down the particular road of, of postulating a mathematical structure and seeing whether or not the world fits it. Um, yeah. But Newton, at least, could see that there were experiments that could be done to confirm his, you know, to confirm his theories. And the difficulty with, as far as I can see, with uh, the math, some of the mathematical cosmological theories is that if you can never observe it and you can't come up with an experiment for it, and in your wildest imagination you can't come up with, a con, uh, uh, with an experiment to confirm it, you're really just on the realm of mathematical theology. It's a mathematical structure rather than something that describes the physical universe if you can't test it. Yeah, and to be fair, I think just as we said, you know, there's nothing wrong with math mathematicians pursuing pure maths for no other reason than the enjoyment of it. I'm not, nothing against, you know, a theoretical physicist uh, thinking about things like, I don't know, the, the you know, the black fire firewalls around black holes, uh, which are really a sort of mathematical concept uh, that nobody's ever going to explore uh, in reality. I'm no, no problem with that as long as it doesn't distract us from actually also thinking about you know, the more practical things, the things we can observe, and that we still need to find lots out. You know, there's plenty out there with observed things like dark matter, dark energy that we really don't understand. Um, and it would be great to have more going behind that, perhaps, than these totally theoretical aspects of physics. Um, one of the quotes that I've always loved, and I, I'm not sure that this actually appeared in your book, but at least I'd like to solicit your opinion on it, is, 
Richard Feynman was asked whether or not there was a theory of everything. And he once said, it, well, if there is, it'd be great. But if reality turns out to be like an onion and all we can do is take off another layer and find another deeper layer underneath, that's the way that is, too. I have a prejudice for theory of everything, and I wonder where you would stand on that. I, I don't know. I, I, think, I suspect to an extent it, it's our desire to have something simple. I, I see no reason why something as complex as the universe uh, should necessarily be so easily addressed. Um, I mean, I think a good example, it's not the same, quite the same as theory, theory of everything, but I mentioned dark matter. Uh, a lot of time has been spent speculating about what kind of particle makes up dark matter, which is this stuff that's out there. There's, there seems to be about five times as much of it as ordinary matter in the universe. But actually, I think we're being too simplistic because there's no reason, you know, we know that in the real world, there are quite a few different particles that make up the reality around us. Why should this dark matter universe, as it were, be so simple as just being one particle? I think sometimes we simplify things because we think things ought to be simple, but there is perhaps a limit to how far that simplification can go. So I'm, I'm not convinced we're going to come down to a total unification, a total grand theory that will cover everything. Well, let's, uh, let's finish off the interview um, with a reference back to the title of your book, which is Are Numbers Real? What's your final answer, as they say on the quiz shows, on the question of are numbers real? How should it affect us in our daily lives and with regard to how we do science? I think numbers started off for real, uh, but as they grew up, uh, they became something far more diverse and far more interesting in this spectrum running from reality to pure fantasy. And I think in terms of how it should affect us, I, I guess there's two sides to this. Um, you know, uh, I think from the viewpoint of non-mathematicians, -math, non non-scientists, we need to understand the middle ground better to realize that mathematicians need to play around with concepts that may not have real-world applications now, but could be useful in the future. And at the same time, I think those who see the world mathematically need to get a better understanding of the non-mathematical viewpoint to be better at translating their thoughts into more comprehensible descriptions um, so that the rest of us, I guess, can at least hang on their coattails and enjoy some of that math as well, because, you know, there is so many great things to enjoy there. Absolutely, there is. Brian, thank you so much. And also, I know that our listeners will want to um, not only explore your book, but possibly get in touch with you. And so I always end interviews with two questions. How can our listeners get in touch with you? And do you have any projects on the horizon? Okay, simplest way is my website, which is Brian Clegg, that's B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-G-G dot net, um, or on Twitter, uh, I'm Brian Clegg, happy to take people uh, com coming to me either way through through those. And a uh, couple of projects on the go, I'm currently uh, just finishing off a book on big data, uh, but before that, I'm going, I will have one coming out uh, called The Reality Frame, which is about relativity and frames of reference, how we see the world around us, and also how we position ourselves. Because I think for a long time, science has this tendency to tell us, you know, human beings are small, insignificant things that don't matter. And I think in many ways, that's doing ourselves down because you know, really back to what you were saying about the ancient Greeks. I think we've done pretty well given the tools we've got available to ourselves.
And at the moment, we're the only intelligent species we know of in the universe, or at least the only species capable of doing math, other than the barnyard owls that are counting and the alligator, you know, the alligators keeping track of their kids. Um, <laughs> anyway, Brian, thank you so much. And just remember us when you publish new books, because we'll, we'll want to talk with you about them. Thank you, Jim. It's been great talking with you. Okay, take care.